Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of A New Books in Terrorism and Organized Crime. Today, I'm very happy to have Eric Schmidt on the line from Washington. Is that correct, Eric? Yes, I'm in the Washington suburbs, Washington, D.C. suburbs. Excellent, excellent. We're going to talk about his co-authored book, Counter-Strike, The Untold Story of America's Secret Campaign Against Al-Qaeda, that um, he wrote with Tom Shanker. And I believe you both work for the New York Times. Is that correct? That's right. I'm a national security and terrorism correspondent for the New York Times. Tom is our Pentagon correspondent. We've been colleagues for several years in the Washington Bureau of the paper. Right, right. Um, well, in our traditional way we do in these interviews, uh, let's start off with a bit of background about yourself and your co-author and how you came to write this particular book. Sure. I, I've been a reporter for the New York Times for 30 years now, covering largely national security and terrorism and some politics in the Washington office for the last 20 years. Uh, I got my start as a, as a news assistant for the New York Times, working for senior columnist James Reston, and then worked my way up through the uh, paper in New York City and in Washington uh, in various departments. But since 1990, I've covered, uh, covered the mil- U.S. military, national security operations, and politics. Uh, I've uh, been a fortunate be, uh, a participant and uh, a member of two Pulitzer Prize-winning teams for the New York Times. Uh, I'm originally from the San Francisco Bay Area and now live here in Washington, D.C. My colleague, Tom Shanker, uh, who's also a longtime uh, reporter for the New York Times uh, covering uh, defense and national security issues, uh, is a native of Oklahoma and worked his way up in papers in Oklahoma and Chicago, and in Chicago he was uh, a correspondent, foreign correspondent, being posted in Berlin as well as Moscow, and also covered the uh, the Bosnia War. I uh, came to the New York Times, and at first as an editor, and then as a correspondent, uh, and we worked together as correspondents on the Pentagon. It was really as uh, his colleagues there uh, covering uh, the aftermath of the 9/11 attacks. Uh, we work closely as partners covering the Department of Defense uh, from 9-11 until 2006, uh, both covering the, the Defense Department here in Washington and then also taking uh, assignments and embedding with troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it was during the, the course of that assignment, and shortly after I got back from a fellowship, uh, that we decided in, in 2008 to write a book about the evolution of U.S. counterterrorism policy uh, since 9-11. Uh, and so it was really drawing on, on uh, those initial years after, uh, after the attacks 
in New York and Washington on September 11th, and really watching how uh, not just the military and the intelligence community, but the whole uh, U.S. government working with allies uh, really had to evolve to uh, first to understand the threat from al-Qaeda and then to figure out a way to try and combat it. And it's a fight that continues today as, as the threat, as al-Qaeda evolves, uh, the response to that has to evolve as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I grabbed this book in an airport bookstore and um, was quite exciting because it was the first book that wasn't simply a theories of counter-terrorism or theories of counter-insurgency book. It was actually a much broader book, as you said. So it, anyone who is interested in this sort of area, this is a chance to break out of the strict silos of the way people think because you give an excellent coverage of a range of different approaches. Um, just getting started on the issue, uh, do you want to give us a quick background? We're really talking about al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda uh, largely in Afghanistan as well and the Pakistan area. But um, do you want to give us a background of the lead-up to here before we even get into talking about things like the drone strikes and other policies? Sure. So, so the book does start on 9/11 with the uh, with the attack on 9/11, and, and we uh, we do make try and make the book approachable by telling the story uh, through the eyes of a handful of characters and where they were on 9/11, and then really tracing them and tracing their own personal evolutions uh, over the next decade. Uh, these are members, senior members of the military, the intelligence community, uh, law enforcement, and policy uh, policy professionals uh, inside the U.S. government. And the point that we make is on 9-11, very few people in the U.S. government knew very much about al-Qaeda or about terrorist organizations in general. Uh, of course, al-Qaeda had been around for several years. Uh, they had carried out uh, you know, the attacks on the USS Cole. Uh, in, uh, in, in a couple years uh, earlier. Uh, and, of course, terrorism had dated back, uh, at least in contemporary history and for the United States, going all the way back to the bombing of the Marine Corps barracks in 1983. So terrorism wasn't new, but it, it, certainly, um, it certainly was seen as something that was far away. Uh, it, uh, it, when it happened, it was, it was tragic, perhaps, uh, but it, it really didn't affect the homeland. The one, the one attack against the homeland, the attack by Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City, was, was kind of seen as a one-off. It wasn't tied to an international terrorist organization. And so, uh, and so people were really focused on many different things. And, of course, in, in September of 2001, you had a new administration, the administration of George W. Bush, uh, that really wasn't focused on terrorism at all. Uh, it was focused on other national security issues, uh, concerns over uh, an ascendant China, uh, uh, ballistic missile defense, and so uh, and so it came. It's quite a shock uh, when the attacks came on 9/11, and in the in the, the struggle that many many in the government went through to understand who this guy Osama bin Laden was, uh, what this organization Al Qaeda, how it was uh, how it was organized, and then go how do you how do you attack that? And our book really tries to trace the evolution of that, because if you look today, what's gone from a fairly hierarchical uh, structure of al-Qaeda, with Osama bin Laden at the top, hiding out first in Afghanistan, then chased uh, quickly into, the, into Pakistan, uh, but an organization that was really uh, you know, focused in South Asia, in, in, again, in first in Afghanistan, and then in Pakistan. And as we've seen uh, over the past decade, uh, the 
capability of what they call a core al-Qaeda, the al-Qaeda headquarters, uh, in Pakistan has been greatly diminished. Uh, it's not been eliminated completely, of course, and there's still uh, a great threat that uh, core al-Qaeda will try and obtain weapons of mass destruction and carry out attacks against the United States. But the assessment is that, is that they are, are really uh, on the run, particularly since the death of Osama bin Laden two years ago. That's kind of the good news. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, al-Qaeda has established franchises uh, in places like North Africa and in East Africa, Kenya and Somalia, under the name of Shabab. And we've seen a resurgence of al-Qaeda in Iraq that's spread into Syria. And then, of course, still perhaps the most lethal affiliate is the uh, al-Qaeda affiliate in Yemen. This was the uh, affiliate that was responsible for the attempted the so-called underpants bomber Christmas Day of 2009. Uh, and then just 10 months later, uh, the same organization tried to pack explosives on some printer cartridges, hide them inside cargo planes bound for the United States. Uh, and but for some very sharp intelligence work by Saudi intelligence and others, those, those bombs were detected. Uh, but that could have been a great threat as well. So what's happened is you've gone from... Uh, Kind of one main Al Qaeda cell in uh, in Pakistan, and now it's a much more diffuse uh, uh, organization uh, run by local affiliates with some guidance uh, from Pakistan, but increasingly independent uh, and, and able to operate on their own. Uh, and so it's arguably, uh, in, in in some ways, an even more threatening environment than it was ten years ago. Although uh, most of these organizations uh, are not believed to have the capability to strike. U.S. homeland, they still have the ability to attack American interests uh, around uh, around the world. Well, now that you've told us what al-Qaeda is, I think it's actually important to also point out who they're not. For example, the Taliban aren't al-Qaeda, so everyone thinks of the war in Afghanistan. The Taliban are a different organization. Al-Qaeda gets misused a lot as a term, and it's referenced quite a bit where it just isn't relevant to the groups that are being discussed. So how far does al-Qaeda go? as an organization, as opposed to some of the other groups that are of concern, even just in the Afghanistan-Pakistan region? Well, it's a very good question, Mark, because we have actually have a, a chapter of the book. It's called is Al-Qaeda. Is, is this like Kleenex? It's a, it's a question that uh, President Obama asked some of his advisors. Has this become a kind of a catch-all term for these Islamic uh, extremist groups? Uh, and as we've seen over the past decade, some of these groups, including those that are evolving in parts of North and West Africa as part of the Arab Awakening, have various, very tenuous connections, if, if any connection at all, to main al-Qaeda in Pakistan. Uh, and this has an important, uh, these have important repercussions, both uh, from a legal basis. Uh, the Congress in the United States that passed laws uh, authorizing the use of force against al-Qaeda, wherever it might be, Questions are being raised today here in Washington. Uh, does that law apply to some of these extremist groups in countries like Libya, uh, where extremists, of course, just a, a year ago on the anniversary of 9-11, attacked uh, the diplomatic mission in Benghazi, Libya, and killed four Americans, including the ambassador there. Uh, so it's, um, it's, it's very important to distinguish you know, what is al-Qaeda, what are these affiliates of al-Qaeda, and now you even have spin-offs from those affiliates. And so the connection has become more tenuous. And you really have to ask yourself, are these groups that adhere to the core principles that al-Qaeda had, that is to uh, get rid of the United States and the American presence in the Middle East, 
and then go after what Osama bin Laden called the apostate regimes uh, in in the Middle East and North Africa. These are these are regimes like the Mubarak regime in Egypt, uh, Ali bin Saleh in Yemen. Uh, many of these regimes that have fallen uh, as part of the Arab awakening. But interestingly enough, the Al Qaeda really had nothing to do uh, with that uh, with that phenomenon. It was really separate and apart from the violent uh, the violence uh, that that Al Qaeda espoused. So one of the challenges today, of course, in, in fighting this is that these groups have become uh, much more regional in their approach. Uh, internally, uh, they're having their own debates, whether they should focus on local grievances or whether they should follow the calling of Osama bin Laden and carry out a global jihad uh, against the West and against the United States in particular. Right, right. And there's another term I think we might quickly just discuss, the, the term jihad and how that fits. It's another misused term. And when we're talking about Al-Qaeda calling it jihad, that isn't necessarily the most common use of the word jihad. Yes, and it's, it's you know, technically it means a religious war, uh, and that is something uh, that many scholars have said has, has worked to the detriment uh, of American and other Western officials when they use this term, because it essentially elevates uh, Al-Qaeda fighters and, and Al-Qaeda operatives to this glorified status, uh, and you have a, a great debate within uh, Western law enforcement and intelligence circles. Uh, if you if you misuse that word in that sense, you're essentially elevating the enemy, uh, and, and it helps them in their recruiting and their propaganda. Uh, whereas if you treat them like thugs, uh, which which is really what they are, a small sliver uh, of the Islamic faith, which a faith otherwise a very peaceful religion, long standing tradition of religion, uh, but this has been essentially a religion that's been hijacked by, uh, by extremists and violent extremists as well. So it's, uh, it's important to uh, remember that when using these words. Yep. Okay, well, let's move on to the actual policies themselves. Um, talking about al-Qaeda from uh, 9-11 forward, what, how did the government first respond to al-Qaeda itself rather than terrorism more broadly? So the initial approach uh, to to fighting al-Qaeda was essentially a kill-and-capture approach. The notion that if you could kill enough of these foot soldiers, if you could kill or capture enough of their leaders, this organization would essentially implode, uh, essentially cutting off the head of the snake. Uh, and this went on for, for a couple of years until uh, then-Secretary of Defense Don Rumsfeld wrote a very important memo to about half a dozen of his top military and civilian aides in October of 2003. And the question that Rumsfeld asked was this. He said, is what we're doing on the battlefield now, and by now he's talking about the war that has spread to Iraq, uh, of course, by the fall of 2003. He said, are our operations in Iraq now, are they actually creating more terrorists than we're taking off the battlefield? Because if it is, we need to change our strategy. We need to change the way we think about this enemy, which is a much more thinking enemy, a much more resilient and adaptive enemy than we have understood this to be before. So it really took almost two years uh, for the government and the senior levels of government to understand the threat that they were facing and the fact that al-Qaeda is, is, is a living organization, really an ideology as much as anything else. And you have to combat the ideology as well as the as its foot soldiers. Right. Right. So, what was the first response then um, after they've made this realization? How did they broaden their strategy? 
Well, so 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 as a result of this memo, uh, there was new thinking that was energized within the Pentagon and within the circles of the Pentagon. As we point out in our book, it's interesting because by 2005, uh, there's some there's some new thinking percolating in the bowels of the Pentagon, and we identify uh, some of the, the key actors in this. And what they're doing is is looking at a, at a distinct change in how you view uh, the fight against terrorism. And what they do is they go back in time a few decades and really uh, look at the principles of deterrence, uh, the traditional deterrence theory, of course, uh, that kept uh, a tense uh, but successful peace uh, through the through the Cold War against the Soviet Union, um, and been, and basically said, is there a way we can look at traditional deterrence and adapt it to today's conditions, today's terms, and fight terrorism, um, fight terrorism using this kind of uh, using a modified and an updated version of of that, and so these uh, these new thinkers in the Pentagon. Uh, supported by colleagues elsewhere in the government and academia, they uh, started shopping their theory around inside the building, inside the Pentagon. And they immediately were met with resistance by the traditional uh, deterrence thinkers. And these were individuals who said, look, this, this new approach that you're peddling will never work because for, tr- for deterrence to work, you have to have physical things that each side can hold at risk. Of course, during the Cold War, the United States, uh, with its nuclear arsenal, was able to hold at risk uh, physical things that the Soviet Union valued, whether it be the Kremlin or military bases or even the uh, the dachas that uh, members of the Politburo uh, had with their, ball- their Bolshoi ballerina mi- mistresses. These were things with physical locations and addresses where ICBMs could be pointed at. And, and the argument for these critics was you're looking at an elusive a uh, network like Al Qaeda, they don't have a home base. There's no, uh, there's no headquarters that you can attack. And the the intellectual breakthrough that these new thinkers in the Pentagon had is to say, well, look at this, look at it this way. Uh, Al Qaeda may be a stateless, borderless organization, uh, but they do value other things. Uh, their leaders and their followers, they value uh, more, less tangible things, things such as prestige and honor. And their success within the Ummah, the Islamic community, and if you can somehow target that and undermine those values, those virtual values, if you will, we believe that you can dissuade, disrupt, and maybe deter attacks uh, of all kinds that terrorists may carry out. So it's a new way of thinking in uh, in terms of of how you go about combating terrorism. Mm. So, in a sense, they started a counter propaganda war. Uh, against al-Qaeda. Would that be accurate? That's right. And we, we point out some of the examples of how this actually worked uh, on the ground because it was one thing to have this great new theory in Washington that even though it's embraced at the highest levels of the Defense Department and even within the White House, it's a whole other matter of how you translate that those principles into tactics and operations on the ground. And if I can just take a couple of minutes to describe a couple of the examples we have in the book. Uh, it'll it'll give you some sense of how they're doing this. Um, one of the one of the uh, challenges they faced, of course, in uh, in uh, in late 2006 and 2007 in Iraq, was the influx of young men who were willing to be suicide bombers. This, of course, was at the height 
of the sectarian violence in Iraq. And young men from all over North Africa and the Middle East were flowing in, uh, coming in through Syria and being equipped uh, once they got inside of Western Iraq with uh, suicide vests. And they made their way into Baghdad and were, were blowing themselves up and, 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 and wrecking you know, havoc and creating terrible casualties uh, throughout, throughout, uh, throughout the capital in Iraq. Uh, and the Americans were, were really, you know, trying to figure out a way how to, how to prevent this. And their first solution was, was very piecemeal, was to try and pick off these individuals, these young men, as they came in across the border. Uh, but many of them, you know, came in without, you know, they didn't, they didn't carry any arms, and they weren't necessarily equipped with their vests until they got right into the capital. So there was no way to pick them up. And it was all very piecemeal. It was all one by one, so it would be very difficult to do that anyway. Uh, the, the attacks continued. Uh, more violence continued in, inside of Iraq. And, uh, and so they were looking for a different kind of solution. And working with their Iraqi allies, they, again, tried to break down the terrorist chain to understand better how it works and operates. Uh, because they understood that if you can pick out the vulnerability in this chain, uh, you can focus on that. You may have, you may have those who may be completely undeterrable, those, say, at at the, at the leadership level with bin Laden and the ultimate hardcore uh, suicide bomber at one level, but you have many people in the middle, the enablers, uh, the money changers, the logisticians who can be affected by this. And so what they learned with this, this chain of, of young men who are carrying out the suicide bombs was that each and every one of them, before they strapped on their vests and went to, to kill themselves, they received a blessing from the emir, from a religious leader. And in, in receiving this blessing, they were assured that they would receive all the benefits in death that they weren't able to, to accrue in life. The, the virgins in heaven, the, uh, the death payments that would go to their family once they were dead. And so these were the, the tangible rewards, they believed, that made their sacrifice all well worth it. And so what the Americans did was they said, look, let's, let's try and move away from this piecemeal approach, and let's go after the emirs. And so what they did was they started targeting these emirs, killing and capturing them, because these were not very popular individuals. And suddenly, al-Qaeda in Iraq had a real serious problem, because without that blessing, the young men were balking and having second thoughts about going forward. And many of them backed out, got cold feet, or just quit altogether if they weren't assured uh, that they could get their benefits. Al-Qaeda had to rush around and try and find second and third string emirs, if you will, and many of these individuals weren't properly trained and didn't instill any confidence. And it really, it really disrupted the al-Qaeda network coming in from Syria and one of their, their principal means of carrying out attacks. So here was an example of, of without even firing a shot, or very few, you could, you could target one individual and it would, it would, uh, it would disrupt this whole chain. Um, another example, if I could, is talking. There was uh, an example of a particular virulent uh, cell, a uh, uh, that is a cell of assailants in uh, Taliban in, in, in southern Afghanistan. It was carrying out roadside attacks night after night against American and Afghan forces. And the initial approach the Americans had was to go after their leader, a guy named Ahmed. And they figured if they could kill Ahmed, the rest of his uh, fighters would. Would, would be dispirited and they would all fade away. Uh, but Ahmed was a very cagey guy. Uh, and even though the Americans, their initial approach was to do something very Western, 
they went out and they put a reward out for Ahmed. And that, that, is, that approach failed for two reasons. One is uh, half the people in this area of southern Afghanistan uh, were scared to death of Ahmed. They, they ratted him out. The fear was that, um, that he would come back and kill them and their immediate family. The other half of the Afghan population, however, they secretly sympathized with Ahmed. They believed that the Americans were occupiers in Afghanistan. They secretly supported what he was doing. So these roadside attacks and ambushes continue under Ahmed's leadership. He's keeping a very low profile, uh, communicating mainly by courier, and it's becoming more and more frustrating to the Americans. Until a couple of commanders, again, working with their Afghan allies, remembered some of this thinking that was going on that they'd heard about in Washington about virtual values and how they could maybe perhaps target those those virtual values of terrorists. And they asked themselves, what exactly uh, are the virtual values that Ahmed uh, respects, that he, he wants? And so what they did was they came up with a plan. And the plan was this, that rather than raising the bounty on Ahmed's head, they lower the bounty on, on for his killing, killing or capturing. And meantime, they... They sent out their surrogates into the Afghan villages and spread the word that that Ahmed wasn't nearly the terrorist leader that he used to be. After all, he had appeared to disappear. He was no longer seen. And oh, by the way, the propagandists said, have you heard that uh, Ahmed's fighters, they haven't been paid in months. And so they're starting to defect to other groups. Well, you can imagine eventually this, this word got back to Ahmed, who's hiding out in his little hidey hole. And he's ang- he is so angry at the Americans for spreading what he considers, you know, vicious lies, vicious propaganda about him as a valiant uh, terrorist leader. And so what does he do? He gets up on his cell phone and he starts calling around to his lieutenants to make sure they really haven't defected. And this, of course, was exactly what the Americans wanted him to do in the first place, because it played into one of the great strengths that the United States developed over the course of the decade. And that was their ability called ISR in the Pentagon lingo, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, the ability of the United States to suck up electronic communications from cell phones, from laptops, uh, everything you can imagine from text messages to emails, crunch that in supercomputers and basically find the locations of individuals that way. And that's exactly what happened here with Ahmed. They were able to rapidly find out his location and go in and capture him and also follow up and capture the half dozen or so of his lieutenants whom he had called. So here was another example of understanding how al-Qaeda is really a network and how you identify weaknesses in the network, weaknesses of their le- of its leaders, and you target those rather than to try and just kill and capture your way to victory. Mm. I've always um, had a theory that just like organized crime and like our gangs, a lot of people join terrorist groups because they just love the lifestyle. It's the machismo of being the great terrorist. And there's a great story you've got in there of one particular leader where the Americans obtained video of him being far less masculine with his weapons training than he was trying to portray. That's right. And it was a case of where uh, it shows not only him you know, being less masculine, but it also it showed him not... Uh, he, he ended up grabbing the, the barrel... Of a, of a very hot rifle, and it burned his hands. And so it showed uh, that he had very little experience in, in actually firing weapons. 
And what was interesting is also that in this video that the Americans showed, it was captured of this particular leader in, uh, in, in Iraq, was not only could he, was he not really a genuine fighter, but he was also making his video, his propaganda video, and you could hear the call to prayer in the background. And you would never have a truly religious uh, zealot, a religious uh, uh, you know, uh, militant. He would be at prayer himself. So the whole idea that he was ignoring the prayer to make this propaganda video also worked against him. Yep. Uh, the United States used that in, in its own propaganda, probably not as effectively as it could have been, but again, they were trying to focus on weaknesses that they'd identified uh, as they learned more and more about the organization, the individuals that populated. Mm. And it's interesting that these stories don't get as much coverage. I mean, I understand the whole mechanism of why a lot of the press works, but there's no video. I remember that particular story getting on the news, but the other more diplomatic and softer efforts, I think the only other one I've ever heard of was the use of the Viagra to reward local tribes chiefs in Afghanistan. Other than that, um, anything that didn't involve uh, video footage of missiles hitting cars, I don't think I've ever seen. Yeah. Well, it's, in, in many ways, it's, it's hard when you're, when you're deterring an attack or disrupting it, it's very hard to measure your effects. Uh, you know, we, we learned these stories uh, interviewing uh, intelligence officials uh, who were later able to recount this because they'd actually gone in and captured some of these operatives like Ahmed. But many times if you deter an attack, you know, you don't really know. Uh, you, you, only, you only learn after the fact, perhaps, when, when the, uh, the al-Qaeda leader is, is, is talking on a, on a cell phone or he's sending an email and he's sending his regrets back to his commander saying, you know, I, we just didn't think we could pull this one off. Here's the problem that we face. And, um, and one thing we try and kind of show in this book is how uh, it, it really does take a very much of a holistic approach to combat terrorism today. Uh, while you certainly need uh, SEAL Team 6, the, the, op- the outfit that, that eventually killed bin Laden, uh, you, need, uh, you need a very strong military, you need strong intelligence services like the CIA to help locate this. But what we pointed out in, this, in our book was, over the course of the decade, you had other organizations uh, within the U.S. government really having to step up and be a part of the, the counterterrorism effort as never before. Uh, the State Department and diplomats had to work much more closely with their counterparts to try and identify the root causes of terrorism and trying to stamp it out before it, you know, before it could spread. You had the FBI becoming much more active in offices overseas in working with law enforcement uh, agencies in, in foreign countries to try and apprehend uh, criminals using traditional criminal justice focus. And you even had the Treasury Department, uh, which became very important as the lead at U.S. agency in helping to identify and track down terrorists and terrorist financing in particular, the lifeblood of terrorist organizations. And if you could, if you could choke off terrorist financing, uh, it made making payroll uh, for fighters, for buying weapons, uh, for, for buying you know, uh, time on propaganda and television made all those things much more difficult. And these were things that really, I, I don't think, were fully developed. Certainly after 9-11, it took many years uh, for counterterrorism officials in the United States to fully embrace this. And it's still a, it's still a strategy that's evolving today, of course. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose we should move on and talk about the actual um, continuing drone strikes themselves. I mean, it's a policy, obviously, that the government sees as 
uh, very worthwhile uh, because the number of strikes has increased and there's quite a few arguments for and against it. Um, what did you find in your research in relation to this particular policy? Well, it's interesting because the drone strikes really evolved. Uh, and as we point out in our book, they were very, uh, you know, the, the military and the CIA were still trying to perfect uh, the means for carrying out these type of attacks. And there was really only a handful of attacks uh, used by armed drones, the armed predators, up until the middle of 2008 or so. And that's when President Bush uh, basically uh, signaled that he wasn't, U.S. wasn't getting enough cooperation from the Pakistani government in the uh, largely ungoverned areas uh, of, of, uh, of western Pakistan along the border with Afghanistan, and he ordered the CIA to escalate its drone campaign against uh, al-Qaeda operatives operating there, the fear being that if you couldn't rely on the Pakistani forces on the ground to take care of them, uh, the U.S. would have to act unilaterally uh, to prevent a repeat type attack of 9-11, which clearly al-Qaeda was still plotting to do. And so what you see is, toward the end, the very end of the Bush administration, and moving into the Obama administration, an escalation, a dramatic escalation, uh, the number of these drone strikes in, in Pakistan uh, that peaked in 2010. Uh, the problem here is, of course, uh, using the drone strikes in such large numbers, even with the care that the CIA claims that it, it did, still resulted in civilian casualties on the ground. And even as they tried to refine these strikes to make them more precise, the perception existed uh, that these were not just, you know, obviously a violation of national sovereignty in Pakistan, but were, but were killing, uh, you know, innocent men, women, and children. Uh, and therefore, they were actually a counterproductive in the effort uh, to take on terrorists. So what, what's happened since 2010 is we've actually seen a steady decline in the use of drone strikes uh, up until today. We're now at, uh, so far, we're in here, we are in late October of 2013. There have been about 2,000, excuse me, two dozen drone strikes this year so far in Pakistan. That's compared to a peak of almost 120 in, in 2010. So uh, President Obama, in a speech in May, uh, basically acknowledged the downside of drone strikes and said he was going to rein them in and uh, he, and order them only uh, against targets, senior leaders that were fighting attacks against Americans or American interests, and we can be virtually assured there will be no civilian casualties. That's a very high standard to meet in a place like Pakistan or Yemen, uh, the other place where we've seen a lot of drone strikes in recent years, and it's still quite controversial uh, in terms of just their... Uh, the effectiveness of the strikes versus the uh, counterproductive side of them, whether they're actually creating more fighters uh, from these things. So does the whole strategy of uh, cutting the head off the snake, or more like a hydra, I suppose, uh, actually have a valuable part in the overall counter strategy to al-Qaeda? It's just one part of the strategy. Certainly, if you're able to take down a leader like Osama bin Laden, uh, whom we learned through the records that they discovered in his hideout, in his in his uh, safe house, was playing a much more important operational role than people believe. Uh, even from his seclusion there, uh, he was still able to have an impact on operational matters. There was quite a delay, of course, in communicating with his commanders. But it's important you know, operationally when he was killed, and certainly symbolically, the idea that here was 
a leader uh, of al-Qaeda who'd been able to survive the greatest manhunt in history for, for a decade, he's finally killed. Uh, that, that goes a long way in knocking down you know, the, the sense of invincibility that he, that he portrayed. Yeah. So having covered all that, then we're, I've taken up a lot of your time this morning or tonight in your time. Where do you think we should go from here? So where should uh, America go in its, its future strategy? in relation to not just fighting al-Qaeda, but generally, because as, as you mentioned earlier, there's other groups as well that have to be addressed. Right. So what we argue in, at the end of our book is that uh, even though the U.S. strategy, we, we would argue, is much more robust, it's a much, it's a much more holistic approach, uh, it still has its flaws. As we've talked about a little bit so far in this discussion, uh, the American approach still doesn't understand the counter-propaganda value is, as well. It, it hasn't honed that strategy as effectively as it has uh, with, the, with, with the drone strategy, for, or the, the ability to actually target individuals with missiles and all. And it's still, uh, al-Qaeda is still using a very simple uh, but effective argument that the U.S. and the West is at war with Islam, and therefore uh, those who belong to the Islamic faith should, should carry out attacks against the West in whatever way they can. It's, of course, a corrupt strategy uh, based on a bankrupt ideology, but it has traction in, in places in the Middle East uh, and in North Africa and much, much of the Muslim world. If they look at places like Iraq and Afghanistan where the drone strikes have taken their toll, or if you look at the, the black sites, the CIA interrogation facilities, places like Abu Ghraib when they were still open, and of course, uh, the continued existence of Guantanamo Bay and the prison there. All these are effective propaganda tools uh, that al-Qaeda uses. Uh, the other thing that we talk about at the end of our book is uh, that despite all these advances, um, the, the American government still has, has failed in one critical respect, we believe, and that is to, to build a sense of resilience within the American public. And by that, we don't mean a, a sense of physical resilience. Uh, of course, the United States and, and, and New York City has has been in the process of rebuilding on the on the site of the old World Trade Center towers that were that were torn down on, on the original 9/11. What we're talking about is, is psychological resilience that say that, that the people in Israel and, and Great Britain have, who have gone through and experienced their own spasms of domestic terrorism over the years, and have come out stronger for it. <clears throat> The first real test of that, I think, in the post-9-11 era uh, was the attack on the Boston Marathon uh, that killed a handful of people. These were two homegrown terrorists, uh, the Sarnaya brothers, of course, who carried out these small-scale bombings uh, that injured you know, several people and killed a, a handful. It could have been much worse. And you know, watching how the city of Boston and the country responded to that was, I think, instructive. Uh, certainly, it showed, I think, more resilience than perhaps we anticipated, but I think we're still very much concerned uh, that should there be a much larger scale attack, terrorist attack in the United States, um, that the American public may not be necessarily prepared for that. The idea that the United States will almost certainly be hit again by a terrorist attack, as it was in Boston uh, last April, is almost a certainty. Because uh, in, this, in this war against terrorism, uh, the United States and its allies they have to be good and lucky all the time to prevent a terrorist attack. Uh, terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda, they only have to be lucky or good every once in a while. 
and it's and they're basically hoping that there'll be an overreaction to that eventual attack uh, that will then allow them to continue in their existence. And I, I think we would we would argue that there was that kind of overreaction after the original 9/11 attacks uh, in going after uh, not Al Qaeda in, in Afghanistan, of course, but shifting the war perhaps against to Iraq, and not finishing the job there, and that by not understanding how Al Qaeda works as a networked uh, organization, how you can go after these vulnerabilities through a holistic approach. Uh, by not understanding that, there was a sense that we, uh, the U- U.S. was had created a kind of an existential threat on the scale that the Soviet Union was during the uh, during the Cold War. And I, Tom and I would argue that uh, Al Qaeda did not represent an existential threat to the United States then, and it certainly doesn't today. But we have to guard against overreacting to that that type of attack, uh, and instead. Uh, when that happens, do as the Israelis, the Brits do. They mourn their dead. They quickly clean up the debris and they damage, and they move on. And they're resilient, and they uh, and redoubling their resolve to go after uh, the extremists who've carried out these uh, these terrible crimes. That is an excellent point on which to end the interview. Thank you very much, Eric Schmidt, for contributing today. Thank you, Mark. 